before we go on and talk about the divided kingdom, let's stop a minute and talk about the books of wisdom. These are the books of Solomon, uh, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and probably the one everyone knows is the book of Psalms. Uh, all of that written by David, people in David's kingdom, or Solomon, as best we know it, though the authorship on all those isn't fully undisputed. But in those books now, we get to see some of the wisdom of that time and some of what people were thinking, the songs they were using, the poetry that was part of their experience. And it gives us a great look into that same time period. At the same time, there's wonderful things about God being written in these wisdom literature that goes far beyond what the revelations seem to be of God in that day. Things are being said, particularly in the Psalms, there's many of them that are messianic, that are not really intended to be prophecies, but are fully fulfilled in Christ. It talks, that talks about things that later we're told this was written because it talked about Jesus being this and Jesus' death on the cross. And some of those things are being shadowed in this wisdom literature. I think the Psalm, if people read the Old Testament at all, Psalms is what they're usually reading and enjoying. And there's much to enjoy about the book of Psalms. I usually, Psalms and Proverbs is something I read generally every Sunday. My my day is starting with a few Psalms and then Proverbs when I finish the book of Psalms and then restart it. The other rest of the days of the week, I'm reading other things, but I just really enjoy crawling into the Psalms on days like that. Again, most of them written by David, though Asaph wrote the one Psalm 78 that we talked about before. Solomon wrote a few of the Psalms or some other names or some that are unknown, undescribed. The details are in your notes about that. So you can get a feel for it. Usually in most translations, it's going to say at the top, Psalm of David or a maskal of Asaph or whatever. I don't want to get into all the poetry construction. That's just more time. Take a Psalms class someday. It'll probably help you just understand. Some of them are acrostics and then the, the different verses begin with the same letter. And there's, there's wonderful things being done that don't fully communicate through in the English because the Hebrew alphabet's very different from ours. So there's, there's a lot of that. What I want to talk to you about from the wisdom literature is how to process the book of Psalms. There's some things in Psalms that just bleed with the new covenant. They're just breathtaking glimpses of God, how we follow him. David saying things like, don't be like the horse that needs bit and bridle, but be like the war horse that just responds to the voice of the master. There's things that are lovely. And then there's things that are problematic. There are things that are more old covenant reputa uh, representations. Psalm 15, I would think of, is who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who can abide in the shadow of the Almighty? And then he offers a litany of who is good enough to be in God's presence. In my old religious days, I used to teach Psalm 15 as the way we should live so that we can be near God. When, as a good Pharisee, I thought I was doing all of those things. When it became clear that what, what David was describing in Psalm 15 is what, who Jesus would have to be to be able to ascend to the hill of the Lord as glorified man and bring us with him into the presence of the Father. And that I, on my best day, could never achieve those. Now I read Psalm 15 very differently. So there's lots of good stuff. Psalm 23, popular psalms. We've already talked about the Lord is a shepherd and we don't need anything more than that. Great story. I want to take a look at two things. One psalm and then I'm going to do it. Uh, actually, we'll take a look at, at two psalms. Just to tell you how I read this. Because there's a mix, and I've, I've chosen one that I think makes a good example of this. There's a mix of both Old Covenant and New Covenant in this language. And when you read, and I think when, when maybe 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about rightly dividing the word of truth, which I don't think he's talking about scripture. I think the word of truth is Jesus. But when we're talking about this word and we're talking about the words of God, that is, and I read Psalm 119, which was, is one of my favorite Psalms. I, it's long. I mean, I, I use it over four or five Sundays. I don't read it all in one Sunday because when I read something too long, I find I start skimming it instead of reading it. So I, I sometimes only read 
seven, eight, nine verses if I really want to spend some time soaking it in. This is one of those uh, stanzas from Psalm 119, 44 through 48. David's saying, I will always obey your law. Now I'm reading that today as a believer and I know, yep, David's heart, no, not David's reality. It was neither his reality as experience. Also, Paul tells us if any of us could have kept the law, then Christ died in vain. So the law is not something that David is going to keep. It's nice that he wants to, but I'm always obey your law forever and ever. What I'm thinking inside is not, ooh, I should do that too. What I'm thinking is nice aspiration and God, I really need help to walk in your righteousness. That's what I'm thinking. Reading the next verse, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. Now we begin to see what is the law? What is precepts? The Old Testament construct, it is these laws and rituals and things we're supposed to ascribe to. What I'm saying is that here's the best part of the law. The law showed us what's God's heart about things. It defined what things were sin. It wasn't always right when it got to foods and things like that. But it did show in the, the Ten Commandments and having other gods before us and immorality and stealing and bearing false witness. It does show us, hey, this is the way God wants us to live. This is healthy living. Not living that way is unhealthy living. And I think things like the Ten Commandments when it says to take the Lord, not to take the Lord's name in vain. I don't think that's swearing like people think it is. I, I really don't think it's, you know, saying a GD or, you know, having some expletive about who God is. I know people think that's what I don't. I think taking God's name is you claiming to speak for God when you're not. When you're putting advice on somebody and you're saying, you know, this is what's true and right and God's told me this. If you're right, great. If you're wrong then you've taken God's name in vain. You've just put God's name to your agenda. I think that's the bigger problem than somebody having an expletive of some kind. But we, we, we do this with all, we iconicize these things. So, well, that's swearing. So we don't swear. But even though we're telling people, well, God wants you to do thus and so when it's really us who want them to do thus and so. Does that make sense? I also find it interesting, we didn't talk about this when we were there, that the, that, the, oh, that the Ten Commandments are really phrased as future tenses. They're really phrased as promises. You will not commit adultery. You will not. And one of the interesting insights Paul had, I think, in the shack when, he, when Mac is talking, he says, what if the Ten Commandments weren't commandments at all but promises? When you know me, you will have no other gods before me. When you know me, you will not commit adultery. When you know me, because they're phrased that way. They're not phrased like don't commit adultery. They're phrased as you shall not. You shall not. You shall not. And these are promises God was making to redeem it. So when David's talking about the law or precepts, what I'm hearing is God's ways. God, I want to study your precepts. I want to seek out the way you think about everything. I, I want to grow to know that. Do I think David knew that in all its splendor? I don't. I think Jesus took us to a new level further on into this walking us out of the darkness. For I have sought out. So I, I read that going, yeah, I do want to walk about in his freedom. I do see his precepts as that freedom rather than bondage. And I used to read that going, yeah, right, freedom. It's kind of like we have to pretend it's freedom to do what God wants. That's the old Pharisee days. Post-pharisectomy. I have much more fun now going, yeah, I know. The way you think about everything is much better than the way I think about everything. So I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. You're going to find in David an awful lot of shame talk. Uh, boy, don't let me be ashamed or let my enemies be ashamed. What you're seeing is that pre-cross inheritance 
of sin that resides in the individual. And David is constantly aware of how other people are thinking of him and other people shaming him and lying about him just devastates the poor guy because his whole sense of worth is based on his reputation. And so shame is just an important part of his language. It's not an important part of a post-cross language. I read the stuff about shame and I'm going, thank God I'm not stuck there. Thank God you and I get through the cross what they could never know. That's why Jesus said, among those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. Better than David, Saul, Isaiah, Moses, Daniel, Ezekiel, whoever you want to name, John the Baptist was the best, Jesus says, in the sense that he had the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb. He had more insight into who God was because there was, there was a, the, the Holy Spirit had engaged him in a way that God was not free to do under the Old Covenant, where the Holy Spirit more came upon people for a moment rather than indwelt people in the same way that he did John and then would us following Jesus' death on the cross. So among those born of women, none better than John the Baptist. And then he makes this outrageous statement. He or she that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The first day newest, most broken believer on the planet has a greater touch with the reality of God than any of these Old Testament people had. That's what Jesus is saying. That's an amazing statement. He that's least, he or she that's least in this kingdom is great. So I read about the shame thing and I'm going, oh, Dave, I'm really sorry you had to live there. Really grateful that what we've gotten to be part of, the things that angels long to look at, we get. And then I delight in your commands because I love them. Uh, great language. If you're talking about the commandments being the Ten Commandments or the law, I don't climb on that page. If we're going to talk about Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, then I can say, oh, I love your commands. I love who you are. And your command, the new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you. That's changed the whole dialogue, hasn't it? And it's allowed us to engage God. So I'm reading through this and I'm, I'm really looking. And I, I know so I read the Psalms this year and then read this maybe next year or two or three years later. I'm interpreting it different ways. My life has grown on in Jesus. So I'm seeing this very differently. But I'm not letting just all of this stand on its own. And yeah, I need to delight in the command. So I better go back and read Moses and find out how to delight in all that or that I need to love the commands. I'm really loving the fulfillment of all that. And if you mean commands by the ways in which God works, which Paul prays about in Ephesians and Colossians, I'm all about that. He's praying, I, I want you to be attuned to the ways in which God works. Man, that's my passion. So this gives me both a passion for wholeness, passion for wisdom, which is what David's have, but his passion is directed at things that were different than now we've been given in Christ. And then I lift up my hands to your commands, which, I, you know, I wouldn't. If we're just thinking commands and lifting of hands. I'm, I'm skipping that. <laughs> but then when it says, I'll meditate on your decrees, I want to just muse on the way God is and the way God works. Now let's look at a different psalm. This is Psalm 109. And this is of those who attacked David with a bunch of lies. So David's being lied about. So you got the shame issue again. And, and here's how David prays. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may cut the memory off from them from the face of the earth. Now, is David praying God's heart here? 
Well, not when, you listen, not when you let the incarnation speak to who God is. And Jesus saying, love your enemies, for God loves those who are wicked and ungrateful. Well, God loves those. And God's not going, yeah, Dave, great prayer. I'm in you on this. Let's, let's wipe out him, his children, all kinds of people. Now, I used to pre-pharisectomy days. And you know what a pharisectomy is, right? It's having your inner Pharisee cut out. That's not a one-time process. I'm 17 years into my pharisectomy, and I'm not sure we're even close to the end of it yet. But... Pre-pharisectomy days, I prayed those prayers for people. There were people, God, I'd love for you to destroy this person, wipe them off the face of the earth so I don't ever have to deal with them again. Post learning to live loved by the Father, I read this stuff and go, boy, David, your sight was so limited. Not because David's a bad guy, just where he fell in this unfolding revelation. It, this is not blame David. David's a bad guy. What we get in this is David was an honest prayer. And if you want God to kill people, the best thing you can do is go talk to God about killing people. It's, it's fine. He's not going to be mad or offended about it, but he is going to adjust the way you think. You're going to find that, yeah, wiping out somebody, making them fatherless. And then the other part of that is, but you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me. Me, me who's committed adultery and murder. And I've done, you know, Uriah could be praying that upper stuff about David, right? And then David's asking for mercy and deliver me, and I'm the object of scorn to my accuser. So then he's worried about the whole shame thing again, which, you know, how do you deal with people who don't like what I do and write dishonest things about with me on the internet? I don't care anymore. I know it's all good with God. I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning in the love and grace of the Father I know and love. I know that. So people believe lies about me. Whatever. What I learned a long time ago was this. As long as you care what people think about you, you are owned by anyone willing to lie about you. And once you no longer care what people think about you, you're free to live in the life and grace of Jesus. And yeah, not everybody's going to think you're just the best thing on the planet. And there's going to be people that actually are going to lie about you and say things that aren't true. And you know what? There's a place in God where you no longer have to care because people don't determine your worthiness. People don't determine your lovability to God. And you don't take your self-identity through someone else's eyes, especially someone who lives this way. Okay? So that's how I read the Psalms. There are parts of the Psalms that I treasure and love. Part of this that I love when I read Psalm 1 to 9 is, yeah, it really hurts, God, when people are lying about you and doing dishonest things. And I want to draw inside the Father, at the place of my hurt, and live what Philippians 3 says, to know God not only in the power of His resurrection, but also in the fellowship of His suffering, so that when I'm hurting, He's in there with me. Even if I'm hurting over selfish things, even if I'm hurting over things that, well, if I really trusted God, I wouldn't be hurting here. He's still all good at comforting us when we're hurting over selfish things. Inside that comfort, is where God gets to tweak us and change us and make us more alive in Him. Now, Proverbs, Song of Songs, we haven't talked about those yet. Proverbs, great book, great wisdom. If you just want to know basic integrity things about your tongue, about business dealings, about money, great book to read. It kind of helps define some of that elliptical playground we talked about yesterday. It, it helps give you that, some of that space where if you're lying and cheating and business dealings, don't think that God's just really loving up on what you're doing. You can know He's not. But don't take Proverbs as the new rule book to follow. You can't get there by following the rules. You can only get there by following Jesus. And so you drag that stuff to him and 
great wisdom there until you get to like Psalm 31. It describes the ideal woman and every woman's nightmare, maybe that passage of scripture. That's what I've got to live up to. No, you don't. You know what that is? Read the context of it. That's a mother-in-law's view of the wife she wants for her son. And yeah, it's crazy. It's what every mother-in-law wants and doesn't exist. So you just read. But it's not like anything it says about that woman is bad. I mean, it'd be great if we could be that. But you're not going to get there by copying Proverbs 31. Song of Songs, I love having erotic, romantic literature in the Bible. It says something about God and the place of our erotic nature and how God fulfills that in a marriage that's really wonderful and how it's poison outside of that. And Proverbs does a lot of that as well. It creates folly or lack of wisdom or the flesh and sin with a brazen prostitute and how we get trapped into that. And wisdom as this virtuous woman never forces, never pushes, just makes herself available. We can come and eat at her table if we want. Or the evil, evil prostitute is always seducing us into her ways. There's a great understanding of how good works, evil works in reading that book. Song of Songs, the good side of an erotic relationship. Some people in the past, they've tried to make it, oh, it's all about Jesus and the church. That might be an example of that, but that's not why it's there. It's a romantic love poem between two people madly in love with each other in the springtime, and it's just wonderful. And then uh, Ecclesiastes. Again, a lot of wisdom, Ecclesiastes, good stuff. But basically, through all Solomon's wisdom, what Solomon gets to is it's all futility if God's not in it. Wealth is futility. So many words is futility. It really is saying wisdom alone isn't enough. Wisdom inviting us into the life of God is the key thing. So those wisdom literature pieces, great stuff. I told you the other day about Ecclesiastes and that one little phrase just coming out when I was reading it one day. How can two people walk hand in hand if they're not going to the same destination? Clarified a business relationship with me that I really needed clarified. And it has freed me in so many ways just because I was reading it that morning in the midst of my praying about that and that jumps off the page. And that God would time that kind of thing to be, that just amazes me.